Good morning, and welcome to Season 2 of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In the first season of the Human Instrumentality Podcast, we covered the celebrated anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion, a post-apocalyptic science fiction show that spawned a multi-billion dollar franchise in Japan. Despite the Japanese ubiquity of that show, it remains a cult hit in the United States, and its creator Hideaki Anno has never been accepted as a prestige filmmaker by the Western critical establishment, even though his early mentor was Hayao Miyazaki, maybe the most well-known Japanese animator ever. In our second season, rather than cover a franchise, we're going to cover the career of an animator who improbably achieved massive critical success in America early in his career. That early success inspired a wave of prestige filmmaking in the West, but overshadowed the rest of his remarkable output. And just as he was building up enough steam to outdo his out-of-the-gate success and threaten Miyazaki's throne as the Sinquanon of anime in the U.S., his life was tragically cut short. We are, of course, talking about Satoshi Kon, whose brief but brilliant oeuvre is a parade of quirky and beguiling works. That's why we're calling this season Satoshi Kon's Bizarre Adventure. By terms dreamlike and nightmarish, Khan's psychedelic and psychological parade of images and characters celebrate the animated film tradition and critique the society that created it, as well as the fans that enable its existence. But we're not just going to talk about Khan the filmmaker. Instead, we're going to use his career to survey the history of anime's golden age, its breakthrough in the West, and the murderer's row of often unrecognized talent that gave it life. So let's begin. Satoshi Kon was born on October 12th, 1963 in Sapporo, Japan. Best known in America as the namesake for its famous beer, Sapporo is one of the most populous cities in Japan's snowy northernmost island, Hokkaido. It's a culturally unique place, home to its own distinct ethnic group, an island the Japanese once warred with Russia over and committed human rights violations to maintain control over. In other words, it's an outlier, the perfect place to create an outsider like Khan. Khan spent his childhood moving between Sapporo and a small town called Kushiro, a place he described as full of mist and mystery. While Japan society westernized in the latter part of the 20th century, Khan grew into a tall, well-behaved social outcast. In high school, he grew his signature long hair and preferred the company of girls, who he described as, quote, more complicated and mature, end quote, than boys. That's a conviction he carried into his storytelling. At the same time, he began reading manga, Japanese black and white comic books, and watching anime. He especially enjoyed sci-fi epics like the original Mobile Suit Gundam and the nationalistic classic Battleship Yamato. 
After high school, he moved to Tokyo to attend the Musashino College of the Arts, intending to be a painter. While in college, he quickly outgrew the sci-fi epics of his youth and became a film buff, almost exclusively devouring arthouse films such as Slaughterhouse-Five and the work of Monty Python alumni Terry Gilliam, who proved to be his biggest influence as an illustrator turned film director. At the same time, Khan began writing and illustrating his own manga, Toriko. He also developed a few habits that would follow him for the rest of his life. Khan became an extreme workaholic, as well as a binge drinker, often forgoing sleep so he could finish his studies, illustrate Toriko, and then watch films with a whiskey in hand and a notepad in the other. This was during a boom in what's known as seinen, or young adult, manga. Comics with fantastic premises aimed at more mature readers. And the brightest rising star at the time was a talented illustrator named Katsuhiro Otomo. At the time, Otomo was writing a comic called Domu, a story about a psychic child that went on to win the prestigious Nihon SF Taisho Award. Khan was one of its readers. Otomo's follow-up took a similar premise and turned it into maybe the most recognizable animated work in Japanese film, Akira. Akira could have a whole episode on its own, if not multiple, but in brief, Akira is the story of a rivalry between two members of a teenage motorcycle gang in a post-apocalyptic Tokyo, one of whom develops godlike psychic powers. Akira was serialized in Young Magazine, a periodical that would later host other important manga such as Ghost in the Shell. Otomo's comic was an immediate hit thanks to its kinetic, non-stop action storytelling and ludicrously detailed illustrations. Young Magazine also put on the annual Tetsuya Chiba Comics Contest, which Khan entered in 1984 with Toriko, winning runner-up. Otomo met Khan at the awards ceremony and hired him to be one of the assistants needed to complete Akira's meticulous and complicated background illustrations. Otomo needed a small army of such assistants, especially when he decided to direct the feature film version of Akira while still finishing the comic. The Akira movie was a technical marvel that went on to be an international hit, the first piece of anime to demand respect from overseas audiences, and a rallying point for an economically ascendant Japan that wanted a seat at the table of international governance, finance, and culture. Miyazaki may be the most well-known anime creator in the West, and Hideaki Anno is his protege, but no Miyazaki film, save maybe Spirited Away, comes close to Akira's impact, and Khan became Otomo's protege while working on it. Khan didn't work on the Akira film in any large capacity, but working on the comic did inform his style. From Akira, Khan learned to draw backgrounds cluttered with objects rendered in ultra-precise detail, juxtaposed with cosmic and surreal imagery. 
He also learned a character design philosophy called Linea Claire, which Otomo picked up from French comic artist Hergé's beloved Tintin comics. Linea Claire means clear line and emphasizes clean, recognizable characters. This is why Otomo and Khan both eschew the doe eyes and wild hair of most anime characters in favor of realistically proportioned and recognizably Japanese humans. Khan displayed all these elements in his second comic, Kaikisen, about a seaside town ravaged by the discovery of a mermaid egg. That comic shares Akira's apocalyptic ending and showy visuals, but also features one of Khan's favorite themes, the lives of ordinary people in a contained community, people frequently left out of fantastic stories like Akira. Working on the end of Akira, as well as Kaikisen, nearly killed Khan. He wound up hospitalized for hepatitis A before the strip ended. And unfortunately, his body-breaking work didn't result in a hit. Akira, on the other hand, was a mega hit that landed Otomo a virtual blank check to work on whatever he wanted. And Otomo made a habit of giving Khan larger and larger roles in his post-Akira projects. First, Otomo had Khan write the screenplay as well as comic adaptation of his 1990 follow-up to Akira, a live-action film called World Apartment Horror. That film's explorations of race and class permeated the rest of Kohn's oeuvre. After that, Otomo hired Khan to draw backgrounds for his 1991 film Ryojin Z, a sci-fi comedy about an old man stuck in a robotic hospital bed with a mind of its own. Those gigs landed Khan a layout artist gig on the Mecha and Cop film Pat Labor 2? Is that how you pronounce Pat, that one? So it's, okay, this is, we can keep, <laughs> Please interject. This is interesting. Okay, it's pronounced Pat Labor. It's a, a portmanteau of patrol and labor. <laughs> I see. Which actually makes more sense than Gundam, because Gundam was them trying to do gun man and doing it wrong. What's Gamera a portmanteau for? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's, 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 so it's raw just means like big and Kame is turtle. So it's like big turtle. And then like when you draw the characters for like a G versus a K, it's easy to make the G into a K. So it's like a stylistic thing i don't know why i know that there's a uh there's a jojo's bizarre adventure uh tie in there that we won't talk about um please continue <laughs> pat labor two <laughs> pat labor two directed by mamoru oshi oshi was another anime auteur of the 80s one interested in big philosophical themes as well as high concept storytelling his 1984 film yurisei yatsura beautiful dreamer took an established franchise and made a contained story about the fluidity of reality and dreams with it, all themes that Khan would later pick up. Pat Labor 2 did well, 
and its success led Oshi to direct the next big international anime hit, 1995's Ghost in the Shell. Coincidentally, adapted from Masamune Shiro's comic, also serialized in Young Magazine. Khan may have learned a thing or two from Oshi, but not hit-making. His postmodern third comic, Opus, was released at the same time as Pat Labor 2 and flopped. Khan tried to work with Oshi on a comic called Seraphim, but the two had a falling out before it was completed. Cohn's perpetual six feet from stardom status did land him one life-changing gig, though. At the same time as Pat Labor, Cohn was hired to script and produce an animated adaptation of an already successful manga series, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Cohn made his directorial debut at the climax of that short-lived series. But before we dive into it, we need to know a little more about JoJo and the scene that created it which is where we will pick up next week. Satoshi Khan, everybody. Uh, an auteur, a legend, a man with a really weird fucking career. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm really glad. I'm really, really glad we're doing this for season two. I know that I mentioned it when we announced it, but I, I feel like I did have to twist your arm a bit to make this happen. All right. Tell but... him, t t why don't you not to just kneecap you this soon into an episode, <laughs> but please, why don't you just tell everyone the story about how we decided to do this season? Well, I mean, I guess that would involve maybe discussing some of the other alternatives that we batted around, which I don't necessarily want to do since we might get back around to it. But it seems like you've got a clearer idea of what you, how about you tell the story? Okay, sure. Is what I'm saying. It doesn't, it doesn't take a, it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't take a, uh, a rocket scientist to deduce some of the things that we've, that we've considered doing. Although there was a period of time when Ian and I began to discuss that we might do a season two of this podcast, uh, which was around the middle of the Evangelion season. We conceived this podcast as a one-off more or less. And then when it became clear that, that people, first of all, people liked it, but second of all, but also maybe more importantly that Ian and I were liking doing it. Right. We started kicking around the idea for a second season and most of what made my short list were pretty obvious things. Think things like Evangelion in terms of time frame and popularity um, and, and maybe subtext theme, those, those sorts of ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. Although I was racking my brain for some real fucking curveballs. Like I did some serious YouTubing to think what's something that would absolutely blindside fucking everybody. Your say yet Sura was on that list. Uh, that's a series that friend of the podcast, Emily Yoshida loves. I know, but you know, I had a conversation and he says, we've got to do Satoshi Khan. And that makes a lot of sense for reasons that we will get into. And I think that's where this conversation's going. But mm. my my big problem with that was Ian, unlike Evangelion, Satoshi Khan's movies are really fucking hard to watch. Yes. 
So maybe we should just get into that. This is a series where, unlike a simple uh, Netflix subscription, you may have to do some renting on your VOD device or, I don't know, go to BitTorrent or whatever. I don't know. Anime fandom in the United States has dubious uh, ethics regarding the legality of trademarks. Cons movies. Ian, go. (laughs) Well, the good news is that since we decided on doing this, uh, there have been some movies added to the Criterion Channel collection. Uh, So if you're a streamer of that particular VOD, then you will have the ability to watch Paprika and Millennium Actress, two of the movies that we're going to discuss this season. One caveat there is the Criterion Channel is very this is not a criterion podcast i love criterion the company i like the criterion channel their notifications on when a movie is coming on and when it's going off and how long it's going to be up um here's some feedback for you criterion if you're listening maybe work on that uh because sometimes i'll just log on and a thing that i think will be there just won't be there for (laughs) reasons the UI could certainly use some work. That's that's definitely the case. Like a lot of the movies on the Criterion channel, the Criterion channel is sometimes hard to navigate and difficult to deal with, which is, I think, could be said about some of Cohn's work, although I think the thing that interests me is this sort of balance between accessibility and headiness that is in a lot of his movies. Uh I think part of the reason why I in particular wanted to discuss Cohen is because I got into his stuff pretty much right after I rewatched Evangelion for the first time in college. And it was sort of the, an obvious next step for a college age, kind of like someone who's beginning to read about postmodernism, beginning to have like enough wherewithal to sort of see the seams on a lot of genres and a lot of conventions in art. And here comes along this director in, you know, in my life, obviously he had been doing plenty of work before I found his work that seemed to tackle a lot of that stuff head on. And also I think confirmed a lot of my own reservations about anime as a whole I think Khan's work, because it grapples so seriously with the medium, both in terms of what it can be capable of on a technical and artistic level, but also the cultural hangups and the limitations of the culture around anime, it was very appealing for me as someone who wanted to sort of overthink everything to have this guy kind of serving up this critique of the same form that he was making. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of my goals when we were doing this season was to do more research than last time. Because something that you don't see too much that may not be apparent in the last season is as it went on, after we'd started recording, I would read more and learn more. And I think sort of like awkwardly shoehorn things into our conversation when they would have made more sense earlier in the season. Mm -hmm. So... One of my goals with this season was I wanted to do more research up front, including direct quotes. And fortunately for us, unlike Hideaki Anno, Satoshi Kon loved to do interviews. <laughs> there's there's tons of interviews with the guy. 
many of them like not fan translated into English, but actually translated into English. There's a whole book about him, Satoshi Khan, the illustrator. Uh, shout out to Seattle Public Library and the Public Library of, I think, Boise, Idaho, for sending me one of the only existing public library versions of that book in existence. That book is like $1,000 on eBay. <laughs> there was a minute where I was like, should should we get a Kickstarter just to get a research manual? And then I'm like, oh, wait, it's 100 pages. No. <laughs> No, no, but there's a surfeit of information on Cone, a lot of it from his own mouth. He seems like the kind of guy where, like, I think you and I maybe both would have hung out with him in college or at least like run in the same circles. Like, as you were saying, he seems like a person who loved media, loved storytelling, but also had always had a desire for more substance. I think he's mm-hmm. someone who like always wanted everything he consumed to be a very high quality and to have a lot of thought and care behind it. And he put that into his work. It's like totally obvious in everything he, he does that he, he really wanted to be excellent and surprising mm-hmm. at the same time which isn't something you always get in anime. It's not something you always get in film in general. And, and that he, I think tended to execute at a high level affirms his value as a, as a filmmaker and a a worthy subject for us. So perhaps it would be a good idea for just us to lay out. Cause I know I've spoken to some of the people that have been listening to the podcast uh, who said that they haven't really watched anything of cons since our announcement and wanted to watch alongside us for this season. So oh, good. We should maybe, before we even discuss the difficulties of how to find the stuff, we should tell people what they should be trying to find to begin with. So, sure. Next episode, we're covering the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVA, which is going to seem like maybe uh, a, a red herring until we get to Khan's second appearance in in television, which we'll we'll get to. I, I promise there's a lot of things that will seem like digressions that will all make sense once we really get into the meat of this of this season. What a Satoshi Khan storytelling trope that is. <laughs> right, precisely. <laughs> What's all this random shit? Oh, I oh, okay. Fine. <laughs> Forewarning, the JoJo's episode is gonna be kind of long. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll tell the story more, but like one of one of my demands when we agreed to do con for season two, is I said, we must cover Jojo's, even though cons his his place in that franchise as a whole is relatively minor. But I think there's a lot of substance there um, Mm -hmm. just to talk about it. So, yeah. So this episode short Jojo's long and then. Perfect blue, quite long in in our estimations. We're going to yeah. try and be creatively generous to you, the listener, with this season. And that episode right. might be a bit of a doozy. Following that, Millennium Actress. Following that, Tokyo Godfathers. Then we're going to st- spend a while luxuriating in Paranoia Agent, his 
relatively short TV series. That's kind of when I first pitched the idea of doing con for season two, I think I may have said, let's do paranoia agent for season two. Right. But there just isn't as much paranoia agent as there is Evangelion. And it would have felt out of balance. Hence this more broad approach to Khan's body of work for the right. season. I, well, go on. Let's talk about the last movie. And then I want to talk about why follow the career of an animator as opposed to a single series. Mm-hmm. Finally, after Paranoia Agent, we're going to talk about Paprika, which I'd say outside of Perfect Blue is probably the movie that most people our age may have come across. If you maybe went down some rabbit holes about reading about Inception back in 2009, maybe you've heard of Paprika. Possibly. A, a rabbit hole related to Inception? Never. <laughs> After that, we'll have one final episode to wrap up the entirety of the season. And that's going to be season two. That's that will be Satoshi Khan's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah. So you mentioned. Why talk about Khan, his career, right? Why talk about his career? One reason is because it it touches on so many different subjects that we didn't really get to talk about in in season one. It's going to enable us to talk at various points in time, a little bit more about like Western filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is sort of weird. You know, in the last season, we talked a little bit about how there's been some little, maybe under the table, touchy feely between Hollywood and Hideki Anno. Ah, maybe we do an Evangelion thing and it never mm-hmm. seems to happen. And I'm happy with that. With, with Khan, there was more. Than just like under the table. There's straight up like people would say we're doing something with Satoshi Khan in Hollywood and it never panned out mm-hmm. multiple times um, to varying levels of consternation as as far as I can understand. Right. Right. <laughs> um, And the other and the other reason I think is that the more we got into Hideki Yano, the more questions we got from readers and from guests about, oh, have you thought about some of his his other films besides even Shin Godzilla, which we did a bonus episode on? Like, have you thought about doing his and her circumstances? Have you thought about uh, his live action cutie honey movie, et cetera, so forth? And the other issue is, as I said, I said this in in the Shin Godzilla episode, I think I we put we, we gave Ono maybe a little too much credit i think Mm -hmm. he deserves a lot of credit but it's it's obvious in retrospect that many of his collaborators have gone on to be like wonderful animators and directors in their own right and that in the absence of some of his original collaborators i think he did maybe lose a little bit of the spark Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. like evangelion was amazing and there's a lot of him in it but you we really can't give him credit for all of it right in following Khan's career, and something I, I think we get into in, in this episode, we got into quite well, I think, is that here's another guy who was in the mix with all these other, like, top A-grade name anime creators. And as as with Ano, sort of had to work his way up the ladder and could, and we can trace this because he did so many interviews, did demonstrably learn things from other people, right? He's like backgrounds, 
started as a background artist. How did I learn to do cool backgrounds? Backgrounds are important in perfect blue. He's like, I got that from doing Akira. Mm -hmm. Period. Which is like, like a third of the joy in reading the Akira comic is looking at all these like wrecked Tokyo cityscapes and being like, you drew every ass broken fucking window in this whole skyscraper as it's flying through the sky. You drew every fucking window. A lot of that was Satoshi Khan. Mm -hmm. It seems by the end of Akira, by the way, as, as best my research can turn up, he became sort of, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's lead assistant. So he's like worked his way up the ladder. Basically. He may have been the first assistant that Otomo hired, mm-hmm. um, but he 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 lived up to being the first assistant. Yes, by the end there was more than one assistant, but he seemed to be by the end Otomo's guy, as you mm-hmm. can tell by Otomo being like, "Come keep working with me. We're gonna do a live action movie. We're gonna do. I've got this other wank ass horror idea, like mm-hmm. or 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 anime idea. Come come with me, right?" The other thing is, I think Khan is a really interesting parallel to Anno as far as careers. They, you know, they started working at similar times. Right. They both have like a big, big mentor. And and they both kind of have like one monolithic hit in their career that kind of overshadows almost everything else. Right. Also... Pretty much around the same time, 95, 96, 97, right in that zone. Right. The The difference, though, I think, is that once you... I feel like Evangelion fandom is pretty self-contained, but right. con fandom... There's like... I don't think you will ever meet someone who's like, yeah, I like Paranoia Agent, but I haven't watched anything else by this guy you sort of immediately start branching outwards because it's such a small body of work that you can ingest it pretty quickly once you know where to look to find it, which, you know, we'll leave that to you. (laughs) But it's, I think it's also very critic friendly in a way. I think there's something about a, a critical mindset. He seems like a critics movie maker. You know what I mean? Yeah, for, for sure. Because he, the thing about Perfect Blue, maybe we should get into how we how we how we mm, got mm. into Satoshi Khan because I was one of those people who sought out Perfect Blue when it when it was relatively new and and not impossible to find on DVD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that because it was I would read An America. One of the joys of like doing this of doing the research for this series is finding digital scan copies of like the old issues of an America I had when I was in like junior high or high school (laughs) and rereading those articles and in the letter section in interviews with people, Evangelion came up all the time. And which is part of the reason why I like read an America was, was like, tell me more about Evangelion. Right. But one of the other things that came up often was perfect blue. Oh, it was like, oh, you've got to see Perfect Blue. They had, I think, full page ads for mm-hmm. the for the DVD release, right? And so it was like that movie was held up as a big deal. And that was sort of Khan's first big thing, so to speak. So right. it, it, because Perfect Blue is a movie, not a series, it sort of became like a dorm poster movie. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's of that same 
like we talked about this in the end of Ava episode that we did. There's kind of this like whole like late mid to late nineties block of like slightly smarter than average dorm poster core movies that perfect blue slides into perfectly (laughs) not to put too fine a point on it, but it is absolutely of the same ilk as a lot of the same kind of like mind fuck American movies of that same era. The, the what a twist movies. Yes, man. We, so should we get into, or should we save it for perfect blue? The big four of, of, of dorm poster movies. We'll get there. I think we should save it for Perfect Blue. We should continue with explaining how we both found this guy in our, you know, in our own histories. So that's that's my con experience. But I think it I think it's reflective of my slightly older age. And mm-hmm. I also think it's relatively atypical. How did you get into Satoshi Khan? So halfway through college, I was back home on summer break. And sort of just like listlessly around in my neighborhood, hanging out with old friends and whatnot. And one of them says, hey, I just started watching this show called Paranoia Agent. Have you ever heard of it? And no, I had not. And I ended up back at his place one night, probably at like 11 o'clock at night. And then 3 a.m. we've watched like the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Dope. Yeah. And I was hooked. I was just, this guy gets it and we'll get into what it means in this case. But I, I was just immediately blown away by the structure of it. The themes of paranoia agent that I think are just like increasingly more and more relevant over time in a lot of ways. And they're complicated. Like they're, it does, that's a, a show that does not leave you with easy feelings or answers about any of the stuff that it raises and I just immediately knew, like, I need to I need to see everything that this guy has done. And by the time that I had watched everything, it was the fall of 2010. And that was when Cohen passed away. Yeah. And there was just this sort of lightning bolt kind of feeling that I had of, like, oh, no. Like, we just lost. I, I felt like I just lost this this person it that I had just discovered the work of. And there, there's this kind of lingering ellipses on his body of work that I just find sad and tragic, certainly, but also incredibly intellectually tantalizing. And it's just never, it's, it's something that's never stopped running over in my head since. Tantalizing is such a good word. I think for what, for what Khan does, he's, he's a, he loves to tease. Mm-hmm. He teases at bigger themes. He uses teases in lieu of exposition often to tell his stories and to fill in the backgrounds of, of characters. He always leaves you wanting a little bit more. Yes. I think with the exception of, of one film of his, which is actually, I think, the best one, but we're not going to say that until we 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 get to it. Um, although I need to give Paprika another watch still as we're recording this, and I need to revisit Paranoia Agent. Which so something that that Khan has that Anno didn't is uh, Paranoia Agent was very quickly picked up and distributed in America on Adult Swim. 
Mm -hmm. I think like maybe possibly before it was done airing in Japan, certainly like not long after in that sense, it was a lot like Cowboy Bebop where it it was sort of given the primo platform to develop a fan base in the United States and not just like a fan base, but the targeted fan base, right? Like, like um, adult swim, it still is, but adult swim is squarely aged at young men between the ages of like 17 and 25. I want to say something like that. You're going into college or just coming out of it, smoking a joint on a lazy boy, be like, whoa, man, that's some fucked up shit. (laughs) Finding out about Marshall McLuhan for the first time. That's the district, the, the the programming block that made lo-fi hip hop a thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is also to say we were, I'm very excited to talk about a lot of music this, uh, this season. Yes, because we'll get into that too. But I just wanted to 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 do a, a con tease of uh, of the music discussion. We don't have to get into it right now, but continue. Yes, it's so difficult to have a conversation about this guy without just diving into his other work. Um, but I I will say this: I also, when we're recording this, have not revisited Paranoid Agent, which is uh, a series that I know a lot of people liked. But I'm going to be honest, I struggled with Mm. when it Mm -hmm. was airing. Um, I didn't have the experience you had where like I saw it and I instantly needed more. Like I saw it and I was like, the fuck is this? And then I went on the air and was like, they let Satoshi Kon do a series? And it's this? Uh, It was, it was, it was, um, I found it challenging. Certainly. Yeah, I get that. I, I will say that it's interesting in the experience I've had so far reviewing his work is less revelatory than the experience that I had rewatching Evangelion right before we started doing season one, where I hadn't watched Evangelion for so long that when I started rewatching it, it blew my mind just how still great it was. Whereas I feel like the thing that I'm, I feel like so much of my, the psychological thing that I was combating in season one was like me versus my like younger teenage self in a lot of ways. And with this, I'm grappling with like my young 20s self. And that's a different guy with a different set of problems and a different set of pretensions. And as a result, I will say, well, I've, I've been enjoying everything I've rewatched and the the movies in particular i think hold up exceptionally well paranoia agent it's been like yep that's good has been like my reaction so far but i think that it'll be a good contrast with our from our first season to have maybe a slightly more critical eye and maybe be a bit not meaner but like really dig into what the limitations of khan's style are as much as we celebrate the things that he's good at well, let me say this, and some of this is a function of there just being more of Khan for me to watch and read. Khan the man, mm-hmm. Khan the person, right? In the course of researching this, I, I I did feel more that I really got to know him, which is weird because his work is like much less autobiographical than Hideaki Anno's. Like yes. Hideaki is a guy who like foregrounds part of the narrative of him making the art is him foregrounding this thing where he's like, 
this is my dirty laundry. I've made you like a a a, a mohai sculpture out <laughs> of my dirty fucking laundry. Please grapple with it. Right. All right. of this touched my genitals. <laughs> Where whereas Khan loves to talk, but you he's much less revealing about like who he is as a person. And the 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 difference is is we struggled politically with Hideaki Anna. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of we don't know that much about his politics, but you and I together, with the help of some friends, shout out to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast again, found out plenty of reasons to believe that Hideaki Anna and I would not vote for the same person. <laughs> would, right. would probably three drinks in, square up and start fisty cuffing. Maybe. Right. right? But on the other hand, um, I get the sense from his work that he's like a, a guy that I have a lot of common feelings with. Mm-hmm. In contrast, Stoshi Khan is someone where it's obvious politically he and I align. We have similar views about he talked more about social issues. He's got a whole movie about like homelessness and the, mm-hmm. the problem of, of it. Not that the people who are homeless are a problem, but the problem of like society allowing this to happen. Right. Um, he's, there's a lot of marginal characters in his work. He's really interested in sort of the, like, if we want to go full Deleuze with it, he's into minor histories surrounding the broader story that's taking place, which is also true of Paranoia Agent, not just the movie that you're referring to. True. He's, he, he seems like a man who has a lot of compassion for those who've been outcast by society, not emotionally, Mm -hmm. but materially. Right. And 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 that's really, really core to like my thinking as an adult. So on on that level, he seems like the kind of guy that I would get along with really well. On the other hand, I read the interview with him like, oh, my God, you equivocating fuck. Stop <laughs> speaking out both sides of your mouth. Right. So pol- he's, he's such a politician. Ah, uh huh. In, in that sense, like a guy who's like, he's like, I very much want you to like a Satoshi Khan movie. Mm-hmm. is the sense I, I get from reading and watching interviews with, with him. So, yeah, mixed feelings on on Satoshi Khan, the person. But you can't, I, I, like you, I, like, cannot deny, especially with the movies, like, the quality bar is so high. Every single one of these movies is worth you watching and is also the kind of movie that you could take to someone who doesn't like anime and you could say, this is fucking good and Mm -hmm. you will watch it and you will know that it is good. Yeah. Right. I I am absolutely going to say that if this is, if you have stumbled onto this episode as your first human instrumentality podcast episode, and you are not normally an anime person, this is the kind of guy and this is the kind of body of work that maybe will get you into anime. And even if it doesn't, you will find something to enjoy in the way that he grapples with the themes that he grapples with. He's just an excellent filmmaker, regardless of the intermedium divide of film and anime. Right. Just on a nuts and bolts level, he's a great filmmaker, as opposed to a guy like Hideaki Anno, who it's like, oh, the story is spectacular. 
some of these details do not add up. Like (laughs) there is some stuff where you were just winging it. You never, I never once feel like Satoshi Khan is winging it. No, he seems like a meticulous planner in a lot of ways. His movies feel very like not overworked, but worked over. If that makes sense. Oh, that's such a good, why have I never heard anyone say that before? That's such a good little turn. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I feel like now we're starting to maybe turn ourselves in circles around here. I think that this episode is just, I wanted to explain my reasons for why we want to do this, explain the reasons for this podcast kind of moving this direction. I think this will help us open up the doors for if there's a season three, we can kind of go anywhere from here because to kind of finish the point I was making before about him being a very critic-friendly director... We're going to be talking about a lot of other stuff, a lot of other movies, a lot of other genre tropes, a lot of other styles. And this will be a great way to lay the groundwork for this podcast to kind of expand into whatever direction we want to take it into next. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And at the same time, if what drew you into Ava or also what drew you into season one of this podcast is mind melty like quote unquote elevated edgelord shit <laughs> there's Khan still does that like it's not like it's not like i don't want it to seem too much like he's like sipping my earl gray pinky out oh evangelion isn't that so effete right <laughs> like that is not the case like if, no. if if you want like chills and thrills perfect blue got it yep um yes. paranoid agent got it like it's there for you if you want it, but also if you want heartwarming family shit, you got that too. Exactly. Get you yeah. a guy who can do both. <laughs> and Cone is that guy. And with that, I, I don't think there's too much more for us to say, except until the next episode, sweet dreams, everyone.